Heavenly Father, this morning we are so thankful for the mothers that you have given to us. Father, we know that no mother is perfect. And yet, Father, we also know that the mothering that takes place is an echo of your care and provision for your children. And Father, to the degree that the mothers that we know, the mothers that we have, seek to follow your example, seek to live in a way that is pleasing to you, seek to live in a way that is in keeping with the scripture that we just read, then Father, we do pray that you would bless them and multiply their effort. Father, you would allow us as... Your word says that we would rise up and call them blessed. Father, we are thankful, Lord, for the work that you desire to do through mothers in helping to instruct the next generation in your ways. And Father, we pray this morning that, Lord, you would help those that are mothers in this church, that you would give them a vision of yourself this morning from your word that would not only encourage them to find strength that they need for their lives as mothers, but Father, it would also give them a vision of you that motivates them to help instruct their children in the things of you and in your word, and that Father, the faith might be passed on with great power to the next generation, that they might be able to continue to hold up the banner of Christ and advance his kingdom in this world. Father, be with all of us as we look to your word this morning. Father, give us understanding. And change our lives by the message that we see there. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we continue our journey through the scriptures, we come to a topic and a book that most people, even many Christians, have little time for, frankly. This morning we come to the book of Leviticus. And that in and of itself... I think probably most Christians have never even read, but what we find on display in Leviticus is a subject that many people in our culture, and unfortunately even some people in our pews, don't want to think about, and that is the idea of holiness. The idea of holiness. Though it might be a book that you skip over in your Bible reading, Leviticus is actually one of the most profoundly theological books in the entire Bible. In the midst of law after law and instruction after instruction, in the midst of uh, all kinds of teaching on blood and sacrifice, we are given the same intense message over and over and over again. It's left ringing in our ears. God is holy. Therefore, His people must be holy. Although we can read it, something very similar in several places throughout Leviticus, our text this morning is in Leviticus 20. Verse 26, this verse summarizes the theme, the message of the book very well. The Lord God says to his people in Exodus, Leviticus 20, verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. God calls Israel to be a holy people for Him. And this is not an arbitrary request. God says, be holy for me. Why? Because He Himself is holy. The Lord is holy, therefore the Lord's people must be holy as well. But what does it mean for God to be holy? 
Well, the truth is, if you just look up the word holy in the Bible, you will find that it's used in a number of different ways. But when it's used about God, when it's predicated on God, when God is holy, or when it's spoken about the holiness of God, then it's as close to an adjective for God that we come to in the Bible. To say that God is holy speaks to God's godness. God is holy. God is God alone, and there is no other. In everything that He is, He is not like us. Everything else exists is not like God. In that sense, only God is holy. And His holiness stands as the foundation for all of His other attributes. Nevertheless, inherent in God's holiness are some specific concepts that we would be familiar with, and in fact that God would call to be projected upon us as His people. The first is this idea of His separateness. Though we are created in His image, we are, in one sense, not like God. He is not like anything else in the world. There is a transcendent quality that puts God above and beyond everything else. And this separateness, this transcendence, is most clearly seen when it comes to God's relationship to sin. You see, to speak of God's holiness is also to speak of His moral blamelessness. It's to speak of His total separation, His total otherness from anything sinful. God is fully and totally righteous and pure. But even saying that, frankly, doesn't do justice to what I'm trying to say. Uh, Think about it like this. Many of you may be familiar with the name Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton was a great scientist who, in fact, was a Christian as well and established uh, many of the things we take for granted in terms of modern physics. And yet, he lived in a day and an age when science was kind of in its burgeoning form. And... um, There wasn't as much knowledge as there is today. And so in the course of one of his experiments, he was looking directly at the sun through a mirror. Now, I know from infancy, don't do that. (laughs) You don't look directly at the sun. But Sir Isaac did not know that. And so he has this mirror set up, and he's looking at this direct reflection of sunlight. And frankly, he looks too long. And he has this image of the sun's brightness burned into his eyes to the point that uh, he's temporarily blind. All he can see is that glowing, burning light from the sun. And, and Isaac is afraid he's gone permanently blind. And so he doesn't know what to do. And he goes and he shuts himself in his room. He closes, or in his house, he closes all the shutters so it's complete and absolute dark. And yet he says in his journal that every time he closed his eyes, no matter how hard he tried to think of something else, all he could see was the image of the sun. Think about that bright, intense, gazing ray, the glory of the sun. And that approaches something to God's holiness in the midst of sin. It's overwhelming. And he he is overwhelming in his purity and in his holiness. That begins to, to help us to see what it means. And yet with that in mind, it's amazing that that kind of a holy God would choose to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. That's exactly what we see. We pick up our storyline from the Bible where we left off in Exodus. You remember that God has redeemed Israel from Egypt. He has called them to be His special people. And yet, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? A sinful people who almost immediately after being taken apart and and having given the covenant of God, immediately go and disobey His commands, creating an image to worship in His place. The solution is the tabernacle that He gives them the instructions to build. This is the dwelling place of God, that will in many ways shield the people from God's holiness. 
And this morning as we begin to look at Leviticus, we pick up right after God has given them the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Less than a month after the end of Exodus, we pick up here, and God is now giving them very specific instructions on what it means for them to be a holy people with a holy God dwelling in their midst. And so from this book, we want to see three ways in which Israel was to live as a holy people. Three examples of the same holiness that God requires of us as his new covenant people today. First, God's people are to be a holy people before a holy Lord by worshiping the holy God. We are to worship as a holy people. Worship as a holy people. At the end of Exodus, we see God giving, again, Moses' instructions for building the tabernacle, God's dwelling place among his people. And in the past, in Genesis and Exodus, God had come down and had manifested his presence among his people, but it was only temporary. Abraham, for instance, would, would, would build an altar to the Lord and offer a sacrifice because of a very specific event in Abraham's life, and God would come down and meet with him. But then he would go back up and he would be gone. We see Noah doing the same kind of a thing. We see, uh, we see Cain and Abel even uh, supposedly uh, trying to do this thing, although Abel succeeding and Cain failing. And yet here, here what God is saying is, I will no longer just come down occasionally, periodically, when something Significant happens. I am going to dwell permanently in your midst. I am going to be with you wherever you go. Where When you land in the promised land, I will be there with you all of the time. And so again, God gives this elaborate setup of the tabernacle as his presence, as a security, as it were, as a shield to protect God's people from God's own holiness. It was to teach them about how holy he himself was. After all, doesn't God say that the reaction of sinful people coming into contact with the holy God is what? It's death. It's death for the sinful people. But the tabernacle itself wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just for God to have a dwelling place. The people were sinful and they would continue to sin. Even at their best, they would fall short of the standard of God's holiness. Therefore, God gave Israel a series of sacrifices to be offered in the tabernacle. These sacrifices would allow a holy God not just to dwell in the midst of a sinful people, but to have fellowship with a sinful people. In the first seven chapters of Leviticus, we are introduced to the five major offerings Israel was supposed to offer. And what you may or may not know is that these offerings were meant to be offered by individuals. There is one sacrifice offered on behalf of the whole nation that we'll talk about in a minute. But the individual Israelite was called upon to offer these sacrifices. The first was the burnt offering. This symbolized the total dedication of the individual to the Lord as the offering was totally burned up, totally consumed. There was the grain offering representing the renewal of one's relationship to God with its pleasing aroma as it cooked. The peace offering was an animal that was sacrificed but then eaten after it was offered, showing table fellowship with the Lord. Sin offerings were given for those sins committed inadvertently, or perhaps in the course of Leviticus we would see an extraordinary uh, ceremonial uncleanness among the people. And then finally there were the guilt offerings which expiate the guilt of the one who willfully committed a sin against God or his people. You break the law, you don't wait for the Day of Atonement. You acknowledge before the Lord, you go to the temple and you say, I have sinned, and so I give this offering over that God may cleanse me from my guilt for that sin. 
And over and over and over again, what we are shown, both in the grain and in the animals that were offered in the sacrifices, is that God's people were called to give their best. They were called to give an offering without spot, without blemish. They didn't say, where's the runt of the litter? That's what I'm going to give. I, I, here's all the best, and then here, here's this last leftover thing I have for the Lord. No. He said, you take the very best that you have, and that's what you give as an offering to me. Now, we don't have time, but let me just put a bug in your ear and set your mind to thinking about what that says about ourselves who are called to be living sacrifices to God. What do we give to God and worship to Him? Do we give our leftovers, or do we give our very best to Him? More than just the best, though, these offerings represent the destruction of life. As the individuals came to the tabernacle with the animal, the, ind- the individual would slaughter the animal, specifically shedding its blood. For as Leviticus 17 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The priest would then take the sacrifice and offer it on the altar of the tabernacle. And so you have the image here. The, the individual coming that with sin would carry, depending on how how rich they were, either a bull or a lamb or a dove, depending on the sacrifice. And they would actually come and they would actually slit its throat themselves and watch the blood, the life drain out. And then they would take that animal, that dead animal, and they would give it to the priest who would then go into the temple courtyard and light up the fires of the altar and offer it up for the people. This whole process God was using to teach the people several things. Number one, that He is a holy God. But number two, that sin always causes death. Sin always brings death. And it's only through the shedding of blood that atonement for sins can take place. And of course, all of these sacrifices came to a climax that one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. And on that day... The high priest would bring the blood of a slain bull and a goat into the most holy place, very back of the temple. You had the, uh, some of your study Bibles may even have a diagram of this. You had kind of the, the, the courtyard, this kind of tent material fence around the tabernacle itself where the altar was. But then you actually went into the tabernacle proper and there was the holy place where you put the showbread and some other things. But then beyond that, once a year, you go back into the last compartment, the holy place, the most holy place, even the holy of holies. And there the Ark of the Covenant dwelled and God's manifest glory was present with His people. And going in there, the high priest would first sprinkle the blood of the bull to sacrifice, to atone for his own sins. And then as the cleansed mediator, he would offer up the blood of the lamb as the sacrifice for the sins of the people. But then afterwards, he would come out and he would take a live goat and he would put his hands on this goat and putting his hands on the goat, he would, he would confess all the sins of the nation. Symbolically placing those sins on the head of this scapegoat. And then it would be led out from amongst the camp, and let go into the wild, symbolizing the total separation, the total removal of the people's sins from God's presence. Unlike the worship of other religions, who only made sacrifices to their gods when something went wrong, God says there is a regular pattern for these sacrifices. There is a regular pattern for these offerings, because you're not going to get any better. Even as you pursue holiness, you will still fundamentally be a sinner living in a state of sin. Therefore, you will continually 
perpetually need forgiveness. And frankly, the same is true for us today. As the descendants of the first man, Adam, who sinned by rebelling against God, so we also sin and rebel because we were born sinners. And like those Israelites back then, we need to have our sins atoned for, lest we suffer under the judgment of God's holiness. But rather than coming up here and offering a blood sacrifice for ourselves, the Scripture says that in the fullness of time, God Himself sent and offered a sacrifice for His people. It was the sacrifice of His own Son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth in the likeness of humanity, though without sin. Therefore, like a spotless lamb, Christ was offered up for the full atonement of sins. Hebrews 9 says, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin for the sacrifice of Himself, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. All of those sacrifices day in and day out by individuals and year by year on the Day of Atonement, all of those things were pointing forward to and find their fulfillment in Christ. Now, no other sacrifice needs to be made to atone for sin. Christ was the perfect final sacrifice. And just as those sacrifices spoken of here in Leviticus were offered in faith so that God's people might be made right with Him, so now today, all who would desire to be made right with Him still come by faith trusting in the sacrifice of Christ to atone for their sins and make them right before God. God's people are called to be a holy people before a holy Lord by worshiping Him as a holy people. But they are also called to be a holy people by serving as a holy people. We are to be God's people by serving as a holy people. You know, God gave a tabernacle where He could be worshipped. Then He gave sacrifices that were to be offered up at the tabernacle in worship, and then Israel was given a special group of men to serve as spiritual leaders overseeing this worship of the holy God. These men were called the priesthood, and Moses' brother Aaron was the first of these men. He was called out to be the high priest over Israel, and it was from his tribe, the Levites, thus the name Leviticus for the book. They were to be the priests that were to come. This one tribe was selected out from among all the tribes and set aside to be the priest over God's people. Now these priests' duty was to ensure that God was worshipped in such a way that His holiness was not compromised. And when I mean holiness not compromised, I don't mean that somehow God would become less holy. Rather, what I mean, His holiness would not become compromised and that people wouldn't take it seriously. The priest's whole responsibility was to make sure that people understood and took seriously the holiness of God. The holiness of God. It involved two things. First, it involved teaching. Do you realize this? We typically just think of the priest as the ones offering the sacrifice. But they are to be the ones who taught the people about God. They are to be the ones going in and amongst all of the two million Israelites, telling them what it means for God to be holy, telling them what it means to live according to God's law. In, in chapter 10 of Leviticus, God says to the, to the Levites, you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. You know what this means? The vast majority of the priests, the vast majority of the Levites, would never lay hands on a sacrifice. Instead, they would be called to take upon God's word up into their heart and into their mind and not only go among the people and tell them verbatim, this is what the law of God says. But then when there was conflict... And people would say, the law is unclear. Well, what do we do here? How do we resolve this issue? They would be the ones making the judgment to say, here is what 
Here is how you proceed. Here is how we deal with this conflict. Because this is how the holiness of God is going to be reflected in the life of God's people. And not only did they teach, though, as we just said, they were responsible for the offering of sacrifices to the Lord, for maintaining the temple again, to help teach the people what it meant for God to be holy. And because of this special service to the Lord, the priests were supposed to be especially holy before the Lord. They were to be both ceremonially clean and morally pure. The priests were to be like their sacrifices, first of all, whole and without physical defect. Because they represented, again, the holiness, the wholeness, as well as the holiness of God. They were also to be like the elders whose children could not bring them to public shame. They had to model godliness in the home. And then they, like all of Israel, were to keep the law of God like the rest of Israel. Now sadly, sadly, shortly after the institution of the priesthood, we see one of its failings. In chapter 10, we read of Aaron's sons who are priests, yet they decide to take it upon themselves to worship God in the way they think is best. God has just said, do it like this, and do it like this, and do it like this. And here's what we read right after this. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Nadab and Abihu offered something. We really don't know exactly what it was. Nevertheless, it was something foreign to the very explicit and specific instructions that God had given to the priests. They had decided, well, You know, I mean, maybe it was an issue of convenience even. Maybe in their preparations they were supposed to do X, Y, and Z. They said, you know, it's just going to be much simpler if we just do A and B. And so they went and they offered what God said not to offer. And what happened? He consumed them. Can you imagine approaching the altar about to to, to put the incense on the fire and the fire just breaking forth out of you and just totally, and being there to watch that? And what's, what's interesting is that Aaron sees the whole thing. And the very next verse that we didn't read was, Aaron kept his peace. You can imagine all of the, as a parent even, all the excuses we would want to make. But God, what? They didn't kill anybody. I mean, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't commit adultery. I mean, there's so many other sins they could have committed. All they did was put, it was do the fire just a little bit differently. Like, I can't believe that you would kill them for that. Aaron didn't do it. Because he knew, as the priests, they are responsible for holding up the holiness of God. And if God is truly the Lord, if He is truly holy, then He is the one who sets the rules, not us. Not us. Does it mean that these two will be in hell? I'm not prepared to say that. I think God just made an example of them. You say, well, I'm glad we're not in the Old Testament anymore. Don't be so fast. Don't be so quick. You get to the New Testament, and what do you see? God moving in the midst of the early church in Acts after Pentecost. And so many people are, 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 are so filled with God's Spirit and so desiring to show love for one another. They have extra land they're not using. Formerly, they, they begin selling the land and bringing the feet of the apostles so that the poor can be taken care of. Now, no one's told them to do this. No one's told them to do this except for God, who's laid it on their heart. And so you have two people, a husband and a wife, and they sell the land and perhaps they get a little bit more than they think they should or whatever, but they decide we're going to keep some for ourselves. 
No problem. That's not sinful. Nothing wrong with that. But here's what was wrong. They lied about it. And they said, no, no, that's all, that's all of it. Right there. And Peter says, can you tell the truth? They say, sure, 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 that's it. Guess what happens? God strikes them dead. Why? Why? Does that mean that they weren't... No. There was an example being set saying, look, right at the beginning as I'm doing this amazing work, filling my people with my spirit, building my kingdom, I'm not going to be lied to. The Holy Spirit is not going to be sinned against in that way. 1 Corinthians 11. The Corinthians, partaking of the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a, in some ways a dangerous thing. It's a glorious thing. But he says, you're taking it in a way that's not appropriate. I have told you, your Savior has told you, how to come and worship him in a unique and special way at his table, at the Lord's table, partaking of his supper. And Paul tells the Corinthians, you're making a mockery of it. You're doing it in a way that besmirches the character of Christ, that defames his glory and taints his holiness. This is why. And he calls them Christians. They're Christians. But this is why some of you are sick, and some of you have even died. Because God is holy. And even the people whom he loves, he will not allow to to besmirch his holiness. Now, I'm not telling you, I am not telling you, just hear me very clear, I'm not telling you, every single bad thing that happens in your life is not a direct correlation between you not honoring God's holiness. The Bible is clear that it doesn't work that way. Just read the book of Job. Okay? It's, it's very clear. It's not a one-to-one correspondence like that. But my point is simply to say, don't think, well, God was harsh back then. No, 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 no. Get to the New Testament. And what does Jesus say? You've heard it said in the law, but I say to you. You've heard it said in the law, but I say to you. The call for holiness is even greater and more intense today than it was back then. And as God's people, we cannot just decide, we want to believe what we want to believe about God. We want to do in church whatever we want to do in church. We go by the instructions we've been given so that God is magnified and He is shown to be the Holy One, not only of Israel, but also His church. And you know what the Bible says is that though there is no more formal priesthood, there is no more people coming in in clothes with stones representing all the families in the church on their breastplate offering literal sacrifices. There's a real sense in which Christ now has come as the perfect priest. He stands as the only real priest. And yet, symbolically, those that would be in leadership in the church stand as priests, proclaiming, teaching God's people, God's word, and how to live by it. But you know even more than that. Even more than that, the New Testament says the church gathered collectively is now a kingdom of priests. And so that the church laity, the church pastors, the church deacons, every single member of God's church, those bought by the blood of Christ, serve as priests to one another and to the world. Baptist theologian Timothy George explains it like this. In the community of saints, God has so tempered the body that we are all priests to each other. We stand before God and intercede for one another. We proclaim God's words in one another and celebrate His presence among us in worship, praise, and fellowship. Moreover, our priestly ministry does not terminate upon ourselves. It propels us into the world in service and witness. It constrains us to show forth the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. All of us have an equal responsibility to live a certain way to the encouragement and edification of one another and as a proclamation of testimony to the world about who God is. You know, when I was in, when I was in college, I was a, what's called a resident assistant. 
That means I was the mommy and daddy for the freshmen away from, from home. Okay, I was there to maintain control in the dorm, make sure the police didn't get burned down, nobody got any broken bones. And um, there was one guy that was in my dorm. I was a senior, and he was a freshman. And like many students, including myself, you go to college, and you're, you're pretty immature. You, you've come out of your senior year in high school, you're, you know, and you think you're something special, and you realize you're at the bottom rung in college, but sometimes it takes a while for that to translate into here. Okay? You don't quite learn the humility yet. All right? And this guy knew that I was going into, felt called and said to go into ministry, and he used to always, always razz me about my Christian testimony. And that was not inherently a bad thing. But he didn't do it in a way to edify me and build me up and encourage me. It was always in such a way as to lessen his need for Christian testimony. So it was something you know, along the lines of, well, you know, it's okay that I'm doing this, but you really shouldn't be here because you're going to be a pastor. You know, it, I mean, it doesn't matter that, I, that I'm doing this activity, but, you know, come on, you're supposed to be the, the pastor. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. I mean, yes, of, 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 of all Christians, the pastor should be godly and holy and a cut above. But guess what? The same qualifications, moral qualifications listed for pastor and Timothy and Titus, guess what? They're listed of every other Christian throughout the Bible. Only two things set the pastor apart. He cannot be a new convert, and he has to be able to teach. That's it. Everything else is laid upon the totality of God's people. Why? Because now it's not just a priest. All of us function together as a priesthood before God in some way. All of us are called by our, our standard of living, the holiness that we are pursuing, to be an encouragement to one another. That's why we have things like church discipline. It's not because we're angry at people. It's not because we're mad at people. It's not because we want to kick people out of the church. It's because God's holy name cannot be compromised by our sin. And so we go and we lovingly encourage and say, this is not appropriate behavior for one of God's people. Come out of it. Let us pray for you. Let's help you. Let's spend time in the Word with you. But if they refuse, then we put them out, Paul says. Why? Why? Because we are functioning as priests, seeking to maintain the purity of God's people, teaching the Word to one another. What does Paul say? To admonish one another, to speak the truth. In love, what truth? The truth of God's Word. Not just truth we see on Oprah or, 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 or Dr. Phil. Or that's not, that's not true. The, the, the true truth of God's Word, that's what we use to encourage one another towards good parenting and good marriage and general godliness. And what's the effect? The world sees that. The world sees that. And though they may disagree with some of the things that we take stands on, there is still an attractiveness to, the, to this holiness. Because we have people of integrity. We'll say, look, this is what God is. This is who he tells us to be as his people. And therefore, this is what we're striving to do. And they're going to see that. And they're going to be drawn to it. That's, that's part of us now serving God, as it were, as a holy people. Well, the last thing. We are to worship as a holy people. We are to serve as a holy people. And then we are to live as a holy people. You shall, be to, you shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Leviticus begins by showing how Israel was to create and maintain an environment for a holy God. And now in chapter 17 through 26, the emphasis shifts. And we see God giving his people instructions on what it looks like to live as a holy people. I have separated you out of, the, of all the other nations. I have separated you out of Egypt very physically. And I have called you not to be like the Canaanites that are going to be surrounding you when you go to the promised land. Be different. Be different. Now, what does that look like? I'll tell you. 
The next nine chapters, here we go. This, practically speaking, this is what it looks like. And we find here all manner of things relating to the life of Israel. The point, of course, is that there isn't any one part of anyone's life that they can say, this is mine, God. You can't have it. I get to decide what to do with this part. No. All of it. All of it is under God's authority. So chapter 17, for example, begins by saying, there's no false worship. You don't just worship however you want. There's no idolatry, there's no child sacrifice, there's no sorcery. All these things are strictly forbidden. In chapter 18, here's how you live in the land that I'm going to give you. And not just how you relate to one another, but how you relate to foreigners and the expectations that are laid upon them in my land. God goes on then to lay out the boundaries of human sexuality, forbidding marriages and activities that would twist and distort the gift that God has given. God goes on to call Israel to be holy in all all variety of of manners, including how they deal in business, how they treat the poor, the elderly, the disabled, and how they treat the foreigner. And all of these things can be summarized in Leviticus 19.18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when you read that, you know, suddenly you should be amazingly convicted that you've not read Leviticus more. Because what does Jesus do? He is told, he's asked, rather, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? You're so smart. Love the Lord your God. All your, with all your soul, your might, and your strength. But the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is he doing? He's quoting Deuteronomy, and he's quoting Leviticus. Jesus says the second most important thing you can do as a Christian is rooted in the book of Leviticus. What does that say to me? I should be reading Leviticus. Now, it doesn't mean that we follow step by step. And should, no, 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 no. But we look for those underlying principles and say, what does that look like today? So, for instance... It says in the in this part on, on human sexuality that a man should not dress like a woman, and a woman should not dress like a man. It should be clear what your gender is by your appearance. Now, in the Old Testament of Israel, that would mean something a lot different than it meant in Paul's day than it means today. In Paul's day, if you were a woman with short hair, it meant you were a lesbian. That, that, that's just, that's, culturally, that's what it meant. Now, today, that's not the case, is it? I mean, maybe sometimes it is, but not as a general rule, okay? You know, I mean, there's Ellen, you know, but... Um, so, but what you, have to, what you have to say is, okay, so as a man now, you know, you know, what would it look like? Well, frankly, what that means is I, I cringe even as comedy men dress in drag. Yeah, it's played for laughs, but you're getting pretty close there at the very least. Okay? How you carry yourself around, I mean, everything about you, you should say, okay, culturally, what is it going to look like for me? What is it going to look like for me to be... But to be fully showing to the world that I am a man. And that doesn't mean that you go, you know, writ, you know, home improvement and become Tim the Toolman Taylor all the time. Oh, oh, oh. You know, that's not it either, okay? But you, you understand the, the, the point that I'm making there, okay? When, when you're told to, in Leviticus, when they're told to, you know, not intermingle in terms of uh, the, the kind of clothing they wear. You don't interweave, you know, uh, you know, camel hair and, and, and lamb hair. Well, you know, frankly, I don't think we even have clothes that are pure anything anymore. They're all synthetics, okay? And again, though, these things are fulfilled in Christ, so we're not looking to keep the specifics. What we say, what is that, what is that reflecting? God is trying to get his people to reflect a sense of, of wholeness, of completeness of their life before God. There is no disjointedness. So maybe an application might be, what's my, what's my family schedule look like? Am I saying to the world that my life is chaotic? That I'm running here, there, and everywhere because I want to have the three cars and the big house and the pool and the kids have to be in all kinds of of sports leagues? Guess what? Your life is not reflecting wholeness. 
And that's the underlying principle. Something needs to go. Okay? Now, I've taken the very controversial stance in my life to say, for the most part, my kids are probably never going to play organized sports. Why? Because games are on Wednesday nights and Sundays. And because once you have one and two and three kids in organized sports, that means you have no time for family worship at night. You have no time for family dinner together at night. And very little time just to sit in front of the boob tube and watch a movie together at night. The family is fractured. And I've said, for me, my preference, the way I want to show a wholeness of life before God is to take this thing that's very non-essential. You know, the last, you know, what, uh, how long have we been here? 6,000 years? The last 5,900 years people have lived without organized sports with their kids? I think I can do all right. I think my kids will make it. But what we're looking for is to say, how, how is our life shaped and give, given over to the holiness of God? In Leviticus, God really begins to step on toes, at least as far as we're concerned. He tells them how to use their time. Now we say, whoa, God, come on now. You know, I mean, okay, I understand no gay marriage, but you're going to tell me how to use my time now? You're going to tell me how to, how to plant my crops? You're going to tell me I have to take this year off and not plant anything? Yeah, God says, that's exactly it. Because all of your life needs to be revolved around an understanding that I am the Lord, I am holy, and that you are a separate people for me. And taking that year off, guess what that means? You've got a whole year to learn to trust me. You've got an entire year with no planting of crops to learn to trust me to provide for you. You know what the sad thing is? As far as we can tell, Israel never took the year off. They never took the Sabbath year. They never, they never got to a place where they could fully trust God to provide for them. Well, all of these things, let me just say, are not supposed to be done just as an external code. Well, one of the, I, you know, I, I read that and at first I thought, doesn't make any sense. And then I got it. In Exodus 19.14, the command is, do not curse the deaf. Think of that for a minute. If I curse a deaf person, are they going to hear me? Are they going to know? I mean, it's not like they had hearing aids back then. They're not going to know if I curse them. And that's the point. That's the point. It's not just an external code. It's, it's, it's a hard thing. They may not hear, but God's going to hear. God's going to know. And so, don't, don't read Leviticus and look at all these extra codes and then think Pharisee, whitewashed tomb. No, no, no. All of these things were to proceed out of a heart that longed for God, longed to be His people, longed to worship Him and serve Him and to love Him for the salvation of the people out of Egypt. Several years ago, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song that captures well, I think, the danger for many of us today. It's called The Change. Here's what he, here's what he sings. Well, I got myself a t-shirt that says what I believe. I got letters on my bracelet that serve as my ID. I got the necklace and the keychain and almost everything a good Christian needs. I got the little Bible magnets on my refrigerator door and a welcome mat to bless you before you walk across my floor. I got a Jesus bumper sticker and an outline of a fish stuck on my car. And even though this stuff's all well and good, I cannot help but ask myself, what about the change? What about the difference? What about the grace? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing I'm undergoing the change? I fear so, so often we, we get so good at living in a Christian subculture of externally appearing Christian, but internally, it's rot inside. We're just on cruise control spiritually. We're not growing. We're not thinking of ourselves as God's people set apart for His purposes, pursuing holiness in Him. And so we become the fulfillment of this song. We have all the external trappings, but we don't have the heart that God is looking for. We have the appearance of godliness, Paul says, but not the reality of it. Now, given by ourselves as Christians, we can't 
We can't change. We can't change ourselves. God knows that. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts from the inside out. And to the degree that we are aware of Christ's presence in our lives by His Spirit, to the degree that we follow His leadership through God's Word as He points us to Christ and reminds us of the Gospel, we will be changed. We will be transformed from the inside out to be the kind of holy people God calls us to be. Here is the last thing. How many of you know who Chuck Colson is? Very famous Christian speaker. And yet one day he found himself, for a long period of his life, spiritually dry like many other Christians. And his friend said, go watch this video series called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And here's what Colson said. All I knew about Sproul was that it was a theologian, so I was not enthusiastic. After all, I reasoned theology was for people who had time to study, locked in ivory towers, far from the battlefield of human need. However, at my friend's urging, I finally agreed to watch Sproul's series. By the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees deep in prayer in all of God's absolute holiness. It was a life changing experience as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God I believe in and worship. My spiritual drought ended, but this taste for the majesty of God only made me thirst for more of Him. In our sinfulness, we may want to run away from God's holiness. But what we see over and over again in the Bible, what we see in Colson's experience, is the exact opposite of what's best for us. The more we encounter the holiness of God, the more we stare deep into the depths of His glorious pure holiness, the more we will find ourselves transformed into His likeness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for You as the Holy God, that there is none like You, that You are morally pure and fully without sin. Father, we pray that as Your people, that that we would desire to be like You. So Father, I pray that in Your in your power, in your plan, and in your provision for your people, that you would be at work in us through your spirit and your word to call us to a greater sense of holiness before you. Father, bring us low with conviction, and yet also, Father, bring us back to our feet with encouragement through the gospel, knowing that sinners can receive forgiveness through Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. At this time, we're